0: Well, i tell you what, I have uh, three kids that I'll be going through college over the next few years. And i tell you what, that home college idea, man, that is a great idea. I never thought about it before. What a great money saver. I think I'll do it. Hey, listen, uh, glad that you're here with us. Glad all those who are joining us online as we are in week two of our series called Money Wise. And uh, last week I began by by sharing with you some what I called some very sobering statistics when it comes to money. And they all culminated in the most sobering of the sobering statistics and that is money is the number one cause of stress and worry in our lives which has a ripple effect. And this is why money is the number one reason why couples fight. It's also the number one reason for divorce, and and this is why for many of us, as we just think about the whole topic of money, there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of guilt that comes attached to the to this whole idea. Now, last week, as we as we introduced the series, we also talked about the title "Money Wise," and we focus on this word "wise," and we said "wise" is short for wisdom, and wisdom is defined as the ability to make sound decisions. Based on your understanding now sound decisions because many of us we were never taught how to make sound decisions When it comes to our finances or some of us, you know We were never given the tools to do that Others of us We were given the tools and we were taught how to make sound decisions when it comes to our finances Uh, But we went through a season where we just made some some bad financial decisions And now we find ourselves in a hole financially or maybe we find ourselves in a really really big hole financially And uh, for some of us we just feel really hopeless now the good news is is that no matter where you are financially speaking, there is hope. And so our goal through this series is to increase our understanding, uh, increase our, our increase our understanding, so we can make better decisions, wiser decisions, financially speaking. So we don't have to end up as a category in the sobering statistics. Now, as a part of this series, last week I said we are offering something that I want you to take full advantage of because I think it is just it's, it is such an important thing and it's such a helpful thing, and that is the, we are offering a Financial Peace University one-day crash course. Financial University usually goes through nine weeks, uh, but we are condensing it a, into just a, a kind of a crash course sort of thing, a one-day sort of thing, and uh, I tell you, it's run by Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is one of the best out there when it comes just to wise financial man- management, whether you're, you're a religious person or you're not a religious person, you will love Dave Ramsey. Uh, I always tell people, if you have a junior or senior in high school or a college student, send them, go with them to Financial Peace. There's such great tools that you will learn. If you're if you're here and maybe you're struggling in your marriage just in talking about and working together as a team or you're in a committed relationship and you're struggling working together as a team, go to Financial Peace. They'll give you some tools on, on how to do that. And, and here's the great thing about Financial Peace University, this time around, it is free, 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 free. free. There's nothing better than free, and uh, so that'll more than pay for itself. And uh, so, if you're interested, I want to I want to encourage you to go to uh, th- this this link. Head to that link, go to the Next Steps room uh, if you like, and you can find out more how to sign up for financial peace. There's one in Oak Creek, and there's one in Greenfield, and I want to encourage you to take advantage of that as a part of the series. Now last week, we kicked it off by talking about the starting point for making uh, wise financial decisions. And we said the starting point, which is not what many of us think about when we talk about the starting point, but the starting point is found in who we believe owns our money. And for most of us, we would say, well, I'll give you the answer to that. I own it. It's mine. I'll do whatever I want with it. But we said if you're if you're a follower of Jesus, the starting point is much different, and it's much better than that. And through this starting point, I introduced us to what is called the ownership principle. And the ownership principle is something that Jesus taught. Uh, we see it throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, through, throughout the scripture. And the ownership principle just says this it says God owns it, meaning everything we have comes from God. Everything we have, and that includes our money and we're managers of it. In other words, you know, we, we manage what he has entrusted to us. And, and we looked at the story that Jesus told last week, and in that story it also said that we are accountable for all the it's that God has given us. And that means, that means our money as well. We are accountable for all the it's, how we manage all the it's that he has entrusted to us. Now, for many of us, when we hear the, this word right here, accountability, we get a little nervous, but as I said last week, accountability is a very, very good thing. Accountability means how we live our lives. The decisions we make with our lives actually matter. And when this sinks into our heart, we will begin to see our lives differently. In other words, we will begin to see our lives because we'll, differently because we'll feel more this. We'll feel more responsible. And when we feel more responsible for something, we make wiser decisions because of it. Now, I wrapped up last week by giving everybody a homework assignment, and I said, in light of this ownership principle, here's what I want you to do. I want you to function this week as if you are managing someone else's money. And then we made these spending journals available to everybody, so you can pick them up in the Next Steps area or wherever you want to go. And what was really cool, at every one of our services, at all of our campuses, we ran out of spending journals. And it was, it was great to see. And, it, and, and for some of you couples, that just talking to some of you couples, it was like, man, we've never done something like that before as a couple. Because, and you know how it works. It's like, you know, one of them's a spender, one of them's a saver. One of them's frugal, the guy. And the, and the other one is fun, you know, more fun, so to speak, or more freeing, however you want to talk about it. And it was like, we did it for a week, and we're still married and where I'm still alive. It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly how it should function. And so if you did that last week and, uh, and you worked through that, man, I'm so proud of you. Continue to take the steps that you are. And just, once again, because there's so much at stake here when you look at some of those statistics. just want you to see it through, keep taking the steps, doing what, doing what you're doing. Now, uh, let me preface this with what many of you are thinking. When the church talks about money, people get a little funny. And it's as if, you know, this should be a topic that we just don't, don't talk about. And on one hand, I get that. But on the other hand, I don't get that. And on the one hand, I, I get that because preachers and churches have abused this topic. And let me just say, that bothers me. That's embarrassing to me because of what I do. But on the other hand, if you want a church that wants to, that's to help you grow in your faith, that wants you to experience the fullness of life that Jesus calls, uh, invites us to experience the fullness of life, then we have to talk about stuff and we have to talk about money because Jesus talks about it more than everything or anything else. But here's my promise to you, and I made it last week as well. I don't want anything from you. I only want something for you, and that's God's best for you, and I mean it. And so if as we go through this series, you're going like, well, I think you want something from me. Here's what I want you to do. Learn everything you can hear and then go apply it at another church. Now, today what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a three-part financial plan that's going to guide the rest of our series. And I tell you, this financial plan, uh, Donna and I, we started to put this plan into place about 15 years ago, and uh, we were in the sobering statistic uh, category, or one of the categories, so to speak, and this has just removed us from that. It has been so helpful, and I hope it will be helpful to you as well. And here's what the plan's called. The plan is called the 100 plan because it's based on 100% of our income. And this plan, there is so much wisdom in this plan because sound decision is built into it, not only in the present, but in the future as well. Uh, there's another name for this plan. It's called this, the 10 plan. Now, for those of you who are bad at numbers, okay, 10 plus 10-8, just, you know, just in case you didn't know that, add up to 100. Uh, it's the 10,1080 80 plan. And here's what the 10,1080 80 plan uh, is. And this is such a great plan. The first 10... Represents the first 10%, and we first give to God. And we give to God to whatever uh, local church that we're a part of. If it's this one, it's this one. If it's another one, it's another one. And uh, in doing this, we honor God with the first and best. And then as a result, He promises to bless the rest. This is inviting God to be a part of this area of our life. And then the second 10 uh, is the second 10% that we set aside and we save. And as a result of setting the second 10% aside to save, we experience the miracle of compound interest. At the same time, we create margin in our life. And when there's margin in our life, we experience peace. Now, this second 10% is so important. Next week, we are going to spend the entire week talking about it, and I can't, ima- I can't think of a more practical time to talk about it because Black Friday's coming up. And so you're going to come in here black and blue from Black Friday, but we're going to repair you. We're going to get you back on again. And so next week, we're going to spend a whole week talking about this, this miracle of compound interest and margin. And then the final, the 80, represents the, the final 80% where we live on the rest. Now, this this final 80% is we're going to spend the final week of our series talking about about this right here. And I tell you, this final 80% has had such a huge impact on on myself and my wife's faith journey that we're going to share some things with you guys in that last week that we have never shared with our church before as a part of our faith journey. So you don't want to miss that in the final week. So this this plan, the 10-10-80 plan, is also called the Give, Save, Live plan. Now, let me just say something about this plan. Not only are these percentages important. It's important to understand the percentages, but the order from which we do them in is important as well. Because for most of us, when it comes to, to managing our finances, we, we do it in reverse. And we start with live. And then if we can, we save. And then if we have anything left over, uh, we may give. But if, if you're a follower of Jesus, this never works. And here's why this never works. Because when I'm first, I'm really saying I believe that I'm the owner. And I want God to bless my ownership. And so it's the me, me, God plan, and God's in last place. And you just need to know, God will never bless anything in our life where he's in last place. And so God steps in and he says, listen, I want you to manage my resources in a way, in, in a way that I can bless you with those. And so what today we're going to do is we're going to focus on the first 10 of the 10 plan. And this first 10 is by far the hardest. It is the most challenging. It comes with the most pushback. It comes with the most attention, attention attached to it. But I'm telling you, this is by far the most impactful part of the whole thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get underneath this and understand the why it's important to God and why it needs to be important to us. Now, if you're here and you're not a religious person, you know, here's the thing. I just want you to modify this however you see fit. Now, the way we're going to look at this today is we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. And this story is told uh, by a guy named Luke. And Luke was a historian. And Luke interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses uh, who were around Jesus during that time. And so he just interviewed them, kind of like an investigative reporter. And he took notes, he took notes, he took notes. And then he published all his notes. They are known as, what we know, as the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. It is the third biography uh, of Jesus. And so where we're going to start today... Luke says thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus. In fact, so many so, they had to rent out Miller Park just to get all those people in there. And so these thousands of people, they are gathered to hear Jesus. And then as Jesus is teaching, some guy just interrupts him, just kind of yells out to him right in the middle of what he's teaching about. So here's how Luke records it. He says this. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus while he's teaching, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance With me Now, here's something I bet you have never seen, a family fighting over money. I mean, you've probably never seen that. Your family's probably never experienced fighting over money. I know my family has never experienced fighting over money, but this is what's happening here. And so they're fighting over the proper division of an inheritance. Uh, Every time I read this story, I think about this this old saying that says, where there's a will, there's a relative. You know, this is exactly, (laughs) this is exactly what's happening here. And so this guy says, you know, Jesus, I feel like I'm treated unfairly. I need you to go to my brother and tell him what I think he should do and we divide this inheritance. Kind of a bold statement. So here's how Jesus responds to him. He says, well, man, which I kind of like. If it was nowadays, it'd be like, dude, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter, arbitrator, literally, between you? And so right after this, Jesus looks at the thousands that are gathered and he he gives them just very stern warning and here's what he says to them he says then he said watch out because you're not looking because you're not even thinking about this because this is a blind spot in your life he says watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed life and when he says life he means this he means happiness he means fulfillment he means security he means identity. You can just kind of fill in the blanks there. He says life does not consist, and we've probably heard this before, in an abundance of possessions. Now, Jesus doesn't say having things is wrong. What he's saying is, is that we will not find life in those things. Now, what's interesting about this is he says be on guard against all kinds of greed. In other words, there's actually more than one kind of greed. Now, greed at its core is this. I'm the owner, and it's all about me, and it's all for me. And what Jesus is trying to warn, warn us about is this. Greed is not measured by what something costs. Greed is measured by what something costs us. And so the problem is, it's not that we possess money. It's that if we're not careful, money can possess us, and we won't even know it. Now, from here, Jesus does something that he would often do. He takes his point, and he illustrates it with a story. And so he's going to tell us a story about a very successful, driven, financial kind of guy. So here's how his story goes. So as he told him the story, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And so this guy's already really wealthy. And Jesus, he doesn't criticize him for his wealth because he's not a bad guy. In fact, Jesus, is like, hey, he's a good guy, because he's wealthy and he he built his wealth honestly. He worked hard, and as a result, he hit the jackpot. Now, I think if Jesus were telling this story today, I, I think he he would say something like this. He would say, "Hey, there is a successful Wall Street guy who pulled into his four-car garage one late Friday afternoon in his Beamer, and he walked in the house." He kissed his wife, he took off his coat, and he headed to the home office. And he flipped open his laptop because he had a lot of work to do in that, on that particular weekend. And as he's flipped open his laptop, he is looking at the stock prices, his stock prices. And he just is going, Woo, wee woo wee And he begins to think as he's looking at these stock prices, man, have I come a long way since the days where I had to max out the credit card and I had to borrow against the house just to keep this operation going. And he's looking at that laptop and he's going, what staggering returns. This is amazing. And then he realizes, I've got a problem. What am I going to do with all this extra money? To which we go, poor guy, you know, what a tough problem to have. Well, then he comes up with this idea, and here's his idea. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And so he comes up with a very good idea. Now, once again, if Jesus were telling this today, I think he would say, so, so the guy reached into his desk, and he pulled out some blueprints, and these blueprints uh, were something that he and his architect had worked on, were his dream for the future, that he was going to build this new, huge complex, and as a result, this complex would allow him to quadruple his infrastructure, which would allow him to make more money than he ever thought he could make, and he, he understands, he knows it's a, it's a huge commitment. And he's done the cost-benefit analysis in his head. He's gone over the projections with his senior staff. I mean, he has covered every possible contingency of this thing. And he reasons that when I get done with this enormous expansion project and I hit the jackpot, then, then, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, I'll slow down. And I'll start taking vacations, and I'll go to the best resorts. We'd at the finest restaurants. I will drink the finest wines. I mean, listen, I will really live. Well, he no more than finishes that thought, and he experiences a deep pain in the middle of his chest. And at first, he thinks it's indigestion, kind of like a you know Malex moment, so to speak, you know. And uh, and then he goes, maybe it was just a I ate bad sushi for lunch. But then the pain, he feels it in his arm. And it goes into his shoulder, goes into his neck, even goes into his jaw, and he begins to feel really lightheaded, and he just starts to sweat. Well, he tries to get up, but he can't get up. He tries to talk, but he can't say anything, and he just collapses with his head on his desk on top of his future plans. Well, a couple hours later, his wife yells to him because she wants to go out to dinner to their favorite Italian restaurant, but there's no answer. Well, after a third time getting no answer, she goes to his office and she sees his head on the desk and she thinks, well, he's sleeping. When will he ever slow down? Well, she goes up behind him and she just kind of touches the back of his shoulders. He moves, but there's no response and panic begins to set in for her because his body is warm, but he's gone. And just like that, just like that, everything changes. Autopsy later shows that he had a massive heart attack. Now, the irony of this whole thing is that this was a guy who the financial community celebrated for always covering every contingency plan. But this guy at this time had no plan for the most predictable event in life. And it's not like God hid it from him because every time he drove by a cemetery, he was reminded, hey, someday everybody will die. Well, while the financial community is mourning his loss and celebrating his life, God eulogizes him with a word that the people who admired him would have never even considered. And here's what it said. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Implied, not yourself. Now why did God call him a fool? Was it because of his wealth? No, no. We see a lot of the heroes of the faith had wealth. Uh, King David, you may have heard King David, Abraham, Job were just a few, and God used them in significant ways. I think a part of us thinks uh, that God has something against wealth, he does not have anything against wealth. Well, was it because of how he proposed to use his wealth? No, nope, that wasn't it either. I mean, he had, he had something and then he managed it well and he built the return and then he had to store it and so he was going to tear down barns so he could store, store it well. No, I, I don't think it was that either. I think that's just good leadership and that's good management. So what was his fatal flaw? Why did God call him a fool? Well, according to Jesus, a fool is anyone who has little or no thought about God. A fool is anyone who has little or no thought about God's activity in their life, God's activity in the world around them. A fool is anyone who has little thought about honoring God with their life or expressing gratitude towards God. And so maybe this guy thought, well, one day when the enormous expansion project is done, then I'll have time to sit back and reflect on my life and think about God. But this day never came for him. You see, he was so busy, so busy making a living, that he missed out on making a life. And so Jesus then concludes his story with this punchline. He says this, this is how it'll be, with whoever stores up things for themselves because they think it's all about themselves, and it's for themselves because they think it's mine, they are the ownership of it, owner of it. But is not rich toward God implied who is the owner of it all? And so Jesus isn't criticizing this guy's wealth. He's criticizing his arrogance. He's not criticizing his plan for the future because it was a good plan. He's just criticizing that God wasn't a part of that plan. You see, this guy fell for the myth, the myth that has followed people throughout history, and it's this, that my life consists of the abundance of my possessions. Now, I want to lock into this phrase, rich toward God. Because this is obviously an important phrase. Jesus told a story about it, and, and it's kind that's the punchline of the story. And not only that, but Jesus talked about money and stuff more than anything else, and I mentioned that earlier. So this idea of rich towards God is an important thing to Jesus. What does that really mean? Well, for us to understand what that really means, we need to go back to our ownership principle because that's our filter. And the ownership principle is this. God owns it, and we are managers that we get the opportunity to manage his resources. Now, implied in this is this, is that we don't just get to do it for God. This is not something that, you know, God gives us and I got to do it for him. We actually get to do it with him. You know, managing his resources is an opportunity for us to actually deepen our faith. In other words, managing God's money is meant to be a relational experience between God and us. Now, let me, let me show you what I mean by this. If God owns it, then it only makes sense that there is something that we need to do that acknowledges his ownership. You know, it's not enough to go, well, I believe God owns it, I believe God owns it, There has to be some step or something in place that we acknowledge God's ownership. And throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, there was something that was in place that acknowledges ownership, and it's this. It was called the tithe. And the tithe represents this, 10%. And that number is not a random number. That is a very significant number because that number means this. It means to test or to trust. And so the idea is this. When we tithe, we're doing two things. We're saying, one, God, first, I acknowledge it's yours. And the second thing we are doing is we are saying, God, I am trusting you to provide and care for me. Now, for some of us, we look at that and go, I could never do something like that. That's the trust part, that God can always do more with 90 than we can with 100. Now, this is where kind of the rubber meets the road, so to speak, because there is a big difference between believing in God and trusting in God. Uh, if you've been around here any period of time, I have, I've shared this before, but when my wife and I were dating, I had major commitment issues. She wanted to get married, and I wanted to stay away from marriage because I was afraid to get married. And so what we would do is, and more like what I would do, is uh, we would talk about setting a date and go like, hey, we're going to make a decision on kind of where we're going with our relationship and stuff, and then uh, we, we would go from there. And so we'd set this date and then the date would come and I'd be like, I gotta, you know, push this date off. And so I would come up with something and I'd say, Can I give a few more weeks? I get get a few more weeks. And then this went on for a while. And finally she said, Hey, listen, are we gonna get married or what? And here's what I said to her: I said, Honey, you don't need the bling because you got the real thing. You know, and that's what I said to her. And now here's the thing. <laughs> this is gonna shock you. It wasn't enough for her. And so finally, so finally, I had to. And I did. I'm glad. We got engaged and uh, we we ended up getting married. Now, here's the thing. When I got married, I took the step to get married. Here's what I was saying to her. I was saying, I'm placing my trust in you to be my wife for life. Now, before I got married, I would have said, I believed in marriage. I believed in marriage. I believed in marriage. But when I took the step to get married, I did something that was greater than believing, that was more relational than believing. It was saying, I place my trust in you. Now, let's just say we never got married, and uh, we've been married 22 years, so we, we were dating 22 years, because she just couldn't let this thing go, you know? She just couldn't <laughs> let it go, and, uh, and so she, we're, we're, we're dating for 22 years, and uh, you and I know each other, and, uh, but we hadn't seen each other in 22 years. Last time you saw us, you know that we were still dating, and uh, we, we start talking, and you're like, well, you didn't get married. You've been together for 22 years. Why did you not get married? And here's what I say to you. I don't know, but I believe in marriage. I believe in it. I believe in it. You'd look at me and go, maybe, but there's a real disconnect with you, Mark. Now, here's the thing this is where many of us are on our faith journey to follow Jesus, if we're on a faith journey to follow Jesus. You see, we would say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I believe that He died for my sins, and He rose from the dead, and all that stuff. But the reality is, we don't really trust Him with our lives, especially this one. Now, here's what you need to know. The invitation to follow Jesus has to do with believing in Jesus, but that is such a small part in it. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to trust him with our lives. And it makes sense when you think about it because trust is a relational thing. Now, when we understand this whole idea of of money and trust, we begin to see some of the things that Jesus said about money in a completely different light. You know, seeing through the lens of trust, this is why Jesus said this, and we talked about this last week. It's one of the most profound things about money that Jesus said. It's one of my favorites. He said this For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, we can just take this word heart and we can replace it with trust. So we can say, Hey, for where your treasure is, there your trust will be also. In other words, how we manage our money reveals who or what we are placing our trust in. And so this is why what Jesus said is so powerful. So he basically says this, change where your treasure goes and your trust. Who and what we are placing our trust in will follow our treasure. Now this is why, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you, know, this, you don't have to worry about this. This is why, if, you, if you're a Christian, the starting point for honoring God is the tithe. Now for most of us, initially speaking, we hear about this and we focus on the amount and that is very, very normal. But this is so much bigger than that. It's what it represents. And the tithe represents our trust level with God. Now over the years, uh, I, I've taught on this and heard other people teach on it. But uh, I, I've taught on this and I can't tell you how many conversations, and I appreciate these conversations because they're honest. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had uh, either out there or uh, in the office or whatever. And, and people will go, we shouldn't talk about that. I don't like that. And, and they've gotten mad and they've gotten mad at me. And uh, every time I have those conversations, my heart hurts for the person that I had those conversations with. Because here's the reality. They're not really mad at me, even though they're taking it out on me. I'm just the messenger. Here's what they're really saying. They're saying, hey, God, I don't want to trust you with this area of my life. And here's the thing. Here's what I say to him so we can save the conversation. Here's what I say to him. I just say this. Listen, don't get mad at me, but here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go home, and I want you to tell this to God. God, I'm not ready to trust you with this area of your life, in my life. And here's the thing. That is a very good place to be. Anger closes us off to God. Honesty opens us up to God. And so if that's you, that's what I want you to do. But tithing tests our trust level with God. Now, I want to wrap it up, and I want to wrap it up with a passage that summarizes this whole thing so well. It's one of my favorites. Uh, It summarizes it so well. And then I'm going to leave you with a challenge, and the great thing about the challenge is it's found right in this passage. And it's found in the book of Malachi. I guarantee you, all of you read Malachi before you got here today. I bet you you all did. And uh, the book of Malachi is found, it's actually the last book in the Old Testament And uh, a little bit about Malachi is that the Israelites, they went through a cycle. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. It was they were following God, then they wandered away, and then they would come back, and then they wandered away. And you see this cycle throughout. Well, at this point in Malachi, they have wandered away. And so they wanted to keep, even though they'd wandered away, they wanted to kind of keep God at arm's length, just make sure he's there, do enough to hopefully pacify him. So they'd throw him a bone every once in a while, of other areas of life. And this included their finances. And so God, what he would often do is he would send a prophet, who's Malachi at this time, to give them a message on his behalf. And so here is is Malachi giving them the message. And he says, hey, will a mere mortal, a mere human being, rob God? Yet you rob me. Now, once again, think ownership principle. God owns it. It's all his. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And they're like, God, are you calling us a thief? Are you calling us a robber? Yeah, that's what I'm calling you. I said, well, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, by not bringing to me the first 10%. And then he says, you're under a curse. Now, what's a curse? A curse is just this. It's when God decides to remove his hand from something. It's when he says, okay, listen, you're on your own. I'm going to withhold something that I want to give you, but now I'm not going to give it to you. And so they were like, well, we don't want that. We don't want that. What do we need to do? And so he tells him, he says, I want you to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, we don't like to think of it this way, but we don't give a tithe. We bring or, we, or return a tithe because it's already God's. This is why he said to him, hey, by refusing to trust God with the tithe, we are robbing him. It'd be like this, I borrow your car and I have your car for two weeks. And then uh, you call me, and you say, hey, listen, um, can, you, can you bring me back my car? And I say, no, it's mine now. What would you do? You would call the cops and let the cops know that I have stolen your car because I'm refusing to bring it back to you. Or it would be like this. I borrow your car for two weeks, and then I call you, and I say, I got a gift for you. I got a gift for you. You're like, oh, man, that's so cool. You got a gift for me? Well, what's, what's my gift? And here's what I say to you. I'm bringing you back your car and you would go, that's not a gift. It's already my car. Yeah, but it's a gift to you. I'm I'm bringing, no, 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 no. This is the idea. This is the idea that Malachi is getting. It's already God's. We don't give God what's his. We return it or bring it back to him. And then he says, the storehouse idea. The storehouse is just a place of worship. For them, it was the temple for us, it's whatever local church we're a part of. Now, people say, well, I tithe to this organization. Now, that's not tithing. That's bringing, that's that's an offering. God determines the tithe because it's his. And throughout, the tithe is whatever place of worship you're a part of. And then he says, test me in this. It is the only time that God says to test him. And it makes sense because he's challenging us in the place that we hold on the tightest to. And so he says, I double dare you, I double dare you, I double dare you. Then he says, test me in this, and this is the promise, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, you've heard me define blessing before. Blessing is a good that only comes into our life from the hand of God, and our life is always better because of it. Uh, I have twin teenage boys, and a few years ago, or a few weeks ago, they were celebrating a birthday. And Don and I decided we are like maybe a great idea. We're gonna get them cell phones this year. Moon in high school, let's get them cell phones and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, when you have twins, everything is double, you know, it's double good, double bad, double expensive, you know, all that stuff. All right. So uh, we're like, we're gonna get two cell phones, it's gonna be a lot, and so we're shopping around, shopping around, shopping around. We finally find uh, our carrier runs this good deal. And so I'm like, oh, this is great, you know? And so on my day off, I decide to go to the store, and they don't know this at the time, uh, go to the store, and uh, we're kind of working this out. Well, it takes three stinking hours to get two cell phones, you know, and I'm going like, did I just buy a car here? I thought I just bought a cell phone, you know? Uh, But we worked it out. We got the cell phones and went to get them cases and just all this stuff. Well, they got home from school. And I'm like, hey, will you guys go with me? I got to run an errand. And you know, you kind of go with me. And uh, so we drive, literally, and we're driving to the place to pick up their phones. And uh, as we're, right before we get there, I said, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, got your phones. Here's the kind of phones we got, which is what they expected. It's much better. And uh, they were like, oh, dad, thank you. We're so excited. Thank you. I cannot believe you did this. We are so happy. Thank you. And here's the thing. They were happy. And I was happy that they were happy. Why? Because I love to bless my kids. And as I said at the beginning of this message, I don't want something from you, I want for you. And one of the for you's I want you to experience is when God blesses his kids when they take a step to trust him. And, and, and the thing about, thing about God's blessing is he loves to bless his kids because he loves his kids. And when God blesses us, it is noticeable. It's not that he's going to give everybody phones, you know, even though that would be great if he did. But he is going to bless us in the exact ways we need, and we will notice it. But you know what's the best part of God's blessing? It's not the blessings themselves, is that through this experience we get to know and experience the blessor. Because managing God's resources is a with him experience. It's relational. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Now, if you're not a Christian, you, you don't need to do this, okay? You, you are completely off the hook, and some of you are like, good, 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 good. But if you are, listen, if you are, I just, you've never taken a step. Listen, I just want you to trust God in this area of your life. You've never trusted God. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to take the 100-day, 100-after-the-plan, 100-day tithe challenge. Now, for the next 100 days, I just want you to go, okay, first 10, God, I'm giving it back to you. I'm returning it to you. I'm bringing it to you and just test for 100 days. Now, once again, if you think I'm scamming you or I'm out for something, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to another church and give there. I would rather have you do that than stay here and not give. And it's not because I, don't want, I, I want you to leave. I just want you to experience this part of your faith journey. I want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to invite God into this area of your life and see him work and see him provide and see him bless. So if you think I'm after after something, go somewhere else and do it there because you will not regret this part. Now, if this helps, if this helps, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the 100-day tithe test, test God, and if, if you give here, if this is where you go, and we can track it, and after 100 days you go, I don't sense God working, I don't see it, you let us know, and we will refund your total for that 100 days. We'll, we'll just give it back to you, and it's fine. We've, I've been doing this for years, and I've only had to do it once in my entire ministry career, and that's because the guy wanted to buy a new car. Now, so, so yeah, I'm just telling you, <laughs> it, is, it is so worth it, and it's because we just trust God here that much. Now, as a part of, of your decision... And for some of you, this is, a, this is a major decision. You're like, whoa, and it is. Here, here's what I want you to do. We have these cards in the seat in front of you, the seat back in front of you. It's called the 100-day tithe challenge card. I want you to pull it out. And here's what I want you to do. You're not giving this away. You're not handing this in, so don't worry about it. I want you to take this. It's got the Malachi passage. It's got the 100-day 100, 100 uh, money-back guarantee. I just want you to fill this out. Check what step you're taking. It's not an amount, okay? And I want you to put it somewhere, and I just want you to put it somewhere, because the next 100 days you go, oh yeah, I remember, oh yeah, that's right, and all this stuff. And you just put it somewhere to remind yourself kind of a mark of this moment as a major decision, major step to trust God in your area of your life, and you put this somewhere, whatever works for you, as you go through this, this 100 days. Now, next week, next week, we are going to talk about the second 10, and we're going to talk about margin, and we're going to talk about compound interest. Let me pray for us. And Father, um, what is so great about this is uh, this is the number one area of worry and stress for all of us. Push comes to shove. But you have created a system for us to remove that. And the only way you can remove that is by us inviting you into that process. And the way we invite you in is by taking a step to trust you that you can do more than we can, that you can carry a bigger load, that you can provide more than we can, and uh, that you're at work in this area of our life because you're at work in every area of our life. And so God, uh, for those who are, are ready to take this step, um, it's a tough step. It's a big step. And uh, I just pray you'd give them the courage. I pray you'd give them eyes to see just how faithful and good and gracious you really are. And God, for those stepping back that are stepping back, it's just great. And God, for those of us who, who already do, we have story after story after story of your goodness and your faithfulness and your provision uh, in our lives. Uh, God, uh, we look forward over the next couple of weeks as we continue to just to go, what does it mean to be wise with the resources you have entrusted to us? And so we look forward to next week as we talk about margin and how you want us to live with margin in our lives. So God, thank you for who you are and how much you love and care for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody, have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week.